Welcome to the Nuffield Australia podcast. This first season features recordings from our 2021 annual conference, held for the first time as a digital webinar. The conference featured Australian and international guest speakers, as well as Nuffield scholars exploring four of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. We hope you enjoy listening to the insights from the conference. Good afternoon, everybody. Congratulations to Emma for running a great first session of this conference. Uh, good afternoon. My name's David Brownhill. I'm a 1998 Nuffield Scholar, uh, also ex-Nuffield Australia Chairman, ex-lots of things for Nuffield, actually, as you've been around for as long as I have. Uh, I'd like to thank the partners for this conference, Rabobank, and in particular for me, because I'm a client, probably keeping an eye on me. What we're going to do, we're going to run through two presentations from previous scholars and then we'll go to the panel session and that's where most of the questions will be attended to. But I'll go straight to, to Ewan McAsh as our first speaker. Now Ewan is a trailblazer uh, of the Australian oyster industry. His passion for supporting local farmers and protecting the environment makes him the definition of a modern oyster farmer. After studying marine biology with an interest in aquaculture, he and his father bought an oyster farm on the New South Wales South Coast when he was 24 years old. He is a 2012 Nuffield Scholar and a founder and wholesaler of Signature Oysters, as well as Smart Oysters, a business dedicated to ensuring farmers are digital ready. In his spare time, he just loves to go surfing like a great oyster farmer from the South Coast. Over to you, Ewan. G'day everybody, my name's Ewan McCash. I am a 2012 Nuffield Scholar and an oyster farmer from Browley, New South Wales. I studied marine biology at university and I've been oyster farming now for more than 16 years. My scholarship study topic was the importance of strategic planning to grow the oyster industry. During my travels, I observed that successful businesses and industries were never insular. Cooperatives, partnerships and collaboration were where the big gains were. At Flora Holland, that was the catch cry. First we collaborate uh, and then we compete. And I think this is particularly important for a small industry such as New South Wales Oysters. After 10 years of farming uh, and a Nuffield scholarship, I now realise that my farming business will never truly thrive unless my whole industry is thriving and healthy as well. What have I been doing since my Nuffield scholarship? Well, I've been launching new companies companies that solve problems for my farming business, but also for the industry as well. I'm wearing all the hats. Oyster Life, which is how we've scaled up my family farm. It's a share farming company. I'm Jace Finlay, part owner in Oyster Life. We're a management company, so we operate through a single farm, but share farm with five other farmers. Then we have Signature Oysters, which is our online sales and direct-to-restaurant marketing company. And this company made us particularly resilient during the last 18 months of lockdowns. We produce oysters to top restaurants. We have about 60 restaurants Australia-wide, and also we sell big volumes to wholesalers. And Smart Oysters, which is a farm operations application for running smart um, oyster farms. Farming is a challenging business, let alone farming underwater. The location, the tide, the wind, waves and weather all provide a unique challenge to every aquaculture farm. Through time, experience and sometimes sheer grit, an oyster farmer will customise their cultivation method, their scheduled tasks of grading, drying and selling in order to solve the unique challenges of their farm location. That is a lot of information for a farmer to remember, but that's exactly what most farmers do. The locations of thousands of oyster baskets, schedules and tasks remembered by one person. I've been an oyster farmer for 15 years. Over that time, I developed better cultivation methods and established new premium markets for my farm. It was during the growth of the business that I discovered the magnitude of the issue I was facing. After years of farming, I had created an environment where I was the only person who truly knew what to do and when to do it. All the history, all the best practice was in my head. I had become trapped as a farm manager, working the business day to day. My efforts to grow the business became a burden, not an opportunity. Smart Oysters doesn't just make farming easier, it changes farmers' lives for better. 
productivity and profits then flow from that. Smart Oysters uses GPS maps and customizable reports to capture the farmer's unique farm practice. It notifies you when your next grade is due, it assigns tasks for maintenance, it keeps track of where your gear and oysters are. It helps you bring on new staff. In doing so, Smart Oysters also captures information needed to make the business more efficient, more scalable, more investable. But most importantly, if you're a farmer, it lets you sleep at night. Traditional management systems prioritise the collection of data. Smart Oysters is different. We prioritise the needs of the farmer. But primarily for me, it's, it's actually knowing what's on those farms. Before, we used to run around on the barge and you'd get off and you'd check every row and every bag, every second bag to see what condition they are. This way you don't have to. This way you just punch it up in your phone and away you go. I can plot this rack's broken and it needs a repair. But it's the app that doesn't let anything slip by. Nothing's ever going to get left because your app's telling you that this batch in this position is ready to be picked up. Smart Oyster app captures the way you run the farm and also gives you a snapshot of the total value of your farm. So that's great for being able to go and talk to banks or investors as to being able to raise more capital to grow the business. Our solution is turning heads in other industries, with pilot programs running on mussel, finfish and seaweed farms. It's exciting to know that these aquaculture industries also need our solution. Smart Oyster's vision is to create a better world, one farm at a time. By this we mean creating better lives, better livelihoods, better produce and a better environment. And that's exactly what Smart Oysters is already doing across the globe today. One of the challenges my industry faces is access to growth capital. There's huge demand for what we grow, sustainable seafood, and a huge opportunity to grow our production. However, unlike land farming, we cannot use our aquaculture leases as assets to borrow against. How are we going to solve this? Well, we're going to use our farm data and technology to access new, more innovative forms of finance. In fact, we're already started to do this using the Smart Oysters platform. Thanks for that, Ewan. No worries, Dave. There's a lot of um, lot of learnings I got from Nafu from traveling the world that have sort of, you know, been impregnated into those businesses, I'd say. Can you expand on the Smart Oyster concept for us, please? Yeah, sure. So and, and smart, smart Oyster is all about managing oyster farms. It focuses on farm practice. And I think because I'm from a sustainable industry, I'd used a database management system for a decade before Smart Oysters. Um, but they weren't really fit for purpose. It really, you know, they really asked the farmer to conform to a database in order to get the value from the report, from the reports that you get about information about your farm. Um, the way we approached it with Smart Oysters is, is that we actually looked at, and I think this was easier because it's a sustainable industry in that we don't have inputs. For, to grow great oysters, it's all about labour. You know, we don't have to feed them, we don't have to treat them. We just have to look after them for often a very long time, up to two, two and a half, three years in order to grow great oysters. So um, we really focus on that farm activity. What do you need to do and when do you need to do it? And that's something that's unique. It's called, we, we call it unique farm practice. Um, each farmer, whether they're in oysters and whether on the land, you know, they learn over time how to, how to farm their patch of water. So with Smart Oysters, we've got the GPS maps that helps you, help you navigate around the farm. But the real key to it is actually going to the farmer, asking them how they farm, and then actually customising the app to collect, you know, um, the information they require uh, using the language they use and the schedules they use in order to know when to go back and do what they know they need to do. So with that in mind, and I can't take all the credit for that, I've got great, great co-founders. Um, you know, we sort of tackled smart oysters, but in doing it for oysters, we're actually finding that, you know, very transferable to uh, seaweed, mussels. And in fact, I've got a pilot running on a, a vineyard and, and even like yourself, David, I've had um, broadacre farmers say, hey, you know, you know, we need something like this, which amazed me. You guys have got, you know, uh, precision agriculture, you've got agronomists, you've got remote sensing. Um, but I think what smart oysters does is really recognise that, you know, there's just those little tasks, those everyday tasks that, you know, farmers tend to remember and, you know, you don't need to. You know, that, that, was, a, that was the lesson I learned over many years is that 
I put a lot of energy. I worked seven days a week into learning how to farm and growing my farm, but then I became trapped as the manager. Um, in the last two years, using smart oysters, I've been able to sort of hand over that farming IP, that farm practice to my brothers-in-law, who you seen, you saw featured in that film. They now produce twice as many oysters than I ever did when I worked seven days a week. Um, the, the oysters are better quality, they're more profitable, the business is more profitable, and they only work four days a week. You know, we've, you know they, they, they took a day to look after them. We've all got young families, so we focus on that really, you know, looking after our families and spending that time with family. So pretty amazing what, you know, in terms of innovation, uh, pretty amazing what you can do with a bit of tech. Absolutely. So if, if and it's all on its innovation banner, so if I start up a new oyster farm down the road from you, uh, I, I, gra I grab your app, you come and ask me what I'm going to do. How long does this process take before it's set up, up and running uh, and I'm operational? Yeah, the, uh, uh, 48 hours. So there's a process in terms of actually, you know, mapping your farm. It's usually on the farmer. It's actually, but the, the longest it takes is, is, is how long it takes to get that information out of the farmer. So mapping your farm and, and, and then customising those fields and reports. You know, I think initially, I think our first farm took four days to onboard uh, and customise. Now we can do it within 40 minutes. Excellent. So if, to, if, if someone, uh, is there a cost to it? And, and who, who, who pays? Yeah, so it's a subscription service. So uh, farmers pay on a monthly basis, um, you know, based on the size of their farm and how many users they have. A typical like small oyster farmer uh, would um, pay $150 a month and you know and then larger farmers it sort of goes up from that. To give everyone some background we've got more than so Smart Oysters is four years old but it's only been commercially available for the last two years. We've got more than 60 farmers using it around the world and the US is our largest market so we've got farmers in Australia, New Zealand, uh, the UK, Ireland, um, the US and, and yeah, and, and everyone's on that sort of subscription basis. We're looking to grow, working with seaweed farms, mussel farms. What, what, what I do know, what we designed Smart Oysters for and from a, from a data perspective and, and for, is that we knew we had to create more value than just a farm management tool. So even though smart, there's great value for a farmer in terms of using Smart Oysters, um, but built into the platform is the ability to integrate other data sources from sensors um, to share data. So we want to be able to share up the supply chain for traceability or certification of provenance. And, um, and as I briefly mentioned, um, well, it, it, we're also looking to see if we can, what we, we are doing, we're using farm data and how, how farmers can show how robustly they're farming to actually de-risk operations and, and get more innovative sources of finance. So yeah, Sort of start. It starts with the app, but the data and and that sort of data economy and what we can do. That's where the great value Smart Oysters has. And what about have you got competitors in this marketplace now? There's a few out there. Um, must have been. It was interesting when I first like I didn't go out. When I, I went first look over my journey as a farmer, I started you know with the old Nokia phones, and I think you know over a decade you know I started using a smartphone and I was doing emails and doing everything you could from the smartphones this is about four years ago and as I was at that time I said surely there's going to be a solution surely I could I could manage my oyster farm um, using my phone and I went looking for a solution at that time there was none so that's why I was set on this journey to actually develop one um, by the time we'd actually developed and launched there was a bit nearly four applications available around the world um, but what but smart oysters is the only one that's running global and, and actually only recently our biggest competitor in the US has just pivoted away from farm management. So yeah, we're we're the leading leading software provider for oysters and aquaculture. Question came out is how secure is your app? That's a that's a good question. The question we get we are asked a lot by farmers. Everyone's worried about um, privacy. We've got all the or the, the usual sort of safeguards in place in terms of data security on, on the cloud. But interestingly enough, say with the app, you were just collecting data. You're just collecting what you're doing in terms of tasks. It's what you do with that information is where the real value lies. And that actually comes back to the farmer. So yeah, it's as, as, as secure as you, can use, as you can get, but really for farmers, it's your 
land, it's where you're farming and what you know you can do with the information we provide from the app, that that's the IP. That's very hard to steal from any farmer. Absolutely. And sort of a secondary question to that too, is that, um, and you talked about how you can't borrow against leases, so back to more to your business and how your business operates. There's a question from Mark Wright, which is how does smart oysters increase access to capital and how do banks, et cetera, react to this sort of tech technology? Usually fairly good. What smart oysters does is give a whole lot more visibility to what farms are doing. You know, real-time inventory, real-time uh, activity, farm activity. I can show you the dashboard right now. You can see the farm activity happening in my farm as guys drop off oysters and, and pick stuff up and maintain equipment. But again, that's probably not enough to get the banks over the line. You know, they still want to borrow against the house and house or those secure traditional assets. But I'll tell you who is really interested and where we are finding that alternative finance from is from people we talked about earlier in the, in the session in terms of people who are interested in sustainability, people who want to know where their food is from. So the investors, in one sense, I've got a pilot on an oyster life farm at the moment where we've actually had investors buy crops of oysters, so or portions of crops. So they buy a portion of the crop, we hold it and bring it to, to a premium price and then we sell it and then we share the profit with the investor. So the other way we're looking at to get more innovative finance is by you know, the lease or rent equipment, uh, the productive assets to farmers based on how robustly they farm, based on their stock inventory, based on the things that actually relate to how productive their farm is as opposed to their asset base, which in terms of most aquaculture farms, my farm was a sorry, good, good example where for the first 10 years I grew my farm borrowing against my parents' property, which is extremely, extremely stressful. Um, and then when I had the, you know, the choice whether I borrow against my family home to go to the next level, I chose not to. Instead, we, 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 we got investors in, involved in Oyster Life to do that. Yeah, good stuff, you and right. As if as we're short of time, thanks for that. I think there's a quick, like, really quick take-home messages. There is uh, oyster farming. All you Nuffield scholars, anyone else out there, is a four-day-a-week job. Sounds like a pretty good job to get into. You can live near the water, drive a boat every day. Um, thanks, you, and we'll come back to you in the panel session. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, who's a 2014 Nuffield scholar, Paul Niven. He studied management systems and price risk management for multi-site dairy operations. Paul moved to China in 2015, where he established and led the pure source dairy business, a joint venture between Fonterra and Abbott with 8,000 cows, which is actually a downsize compared to what he was doing in Tasmania at 25,000 cows. He now leads the dairy consultancy practice for Asian agribusiness consulting, working with large scale dairies in China to build new farms and improve performance. He has a Bachelor in Veterinary Science, a Master's of Veterinary Science, an MBA from somewhere in the UK. But probably the most interesting thing I found out about Paul, who's currently 47 years old, he plays AFL for the Beijing Bombers, and he also still plays rugby union for the Beijing Aardvarks at 47. So ladies and gentlemen, Paul Newman. Thank you very much, David. Look, firstly, thank you to Nuffield for this opportunity. Um, I'm dialing in today from a place called Balto, in Inner Mongolia. It's the second biggest city behind Ho Ho Hot. And I've been up here looking at some dairy farms yesterday and also speaking at a, a conference about managing uh, reproduction on dairy farms. As David said in my introduction, I've been here now for about six years, six and a half years. And I was thinking about heading back to Australia. Obviously COVID has made what was my normal life of going back to Australia four times a year almost impossible. Last year, I went back and did my two weeks quarantine in Australia and then came back to China in January of this year and did three weeks. And during that time of three weeks quarantine, I realised that the number of foreigners in China has now gone from about 5 million before COVID down to about 800,000. And there is still a huge knowledge gap, particularly in agriculture. And that really leads me into this uh, topic today, which is around innovation and infrastructure. So. There's three things I'd like to share with you today. The first one is around the adoption of some of the technologies. So firstly, here is uh, some of the, the technology that's being used. So this was earlier this year. As we all know, drones are a very useful tool in, in agriculture. And here in China, they've now started being used for uh, spraying of, of crops, particularly for herbicides and uh, some pesticides. So this is spraying a wheat crop. Um, a few months ago and as you can see here you know good little drone happily spraying a crop and on the surface you think oh great you know there's some good technology being adopted here now 
if we go to the next slide, you can see behind my colleague there in the high-vis vest, you can see a little, uh, little truck. So they, they basically have two drones per truck. They have a structure within it and they mix up their chemicals, as you can see there, using no PPE, no real dilution rates. It's a splash of this and a splash of that. And unfortunately, you see a wonderful technology like a drone that is not being used very well. But then if you look further, and if we look at the next slide, here they are mixing up the water. So this is a, it's a man-made waterway, but it's a, it's a ditch. There are fish that live in this ditch. And old mates down there um, mixing up his pesticide, which I think was imidacloprid, with a plastic bag submersing that into the water. So unfortunately, you can see that behind the scenes, we have a lot more work to do. And obviously, as soon as I saw this, I went over, I stopped this guy immediately from working and explained that there is no way in the world that we need to be or that we should be doing this. So the adoption of innovation is one thing, but if we do not actually address, and I, I really found the last presentation about managing the workflow, managing our people on the oyster farm, very similar to this, this type of thing. You know, we, we can deploy drones, but if we're going to potentially wipe out all the fish in this little ditch here, we're doing very bad things. So innovation is one thing, but without the knowledge and the skills of what we're actually doing and changing the behind the scenes activities, we're not gonna make any progress. This is a few months ago, this is in July, harvesting our wheat. Now, there's nothing too special about harvesting wheat um, in China, but when they do do it, because we harvest all our wheat, literally in about a week long period, that little field that's about 100 acres has seven harvesters going in at the same time. And it's an absolute chaotic event. And again, this creates an absolute nightmare for us in terms of health and safety. These harvesters are just out harvesting wheat and they go in any direction and every direction. So again, we've got good technology um, that doesn't do a bad job, but we've got lack of organisation of our people um, through that work. So we might be uh, definitely deploying some smart oyster technology to try and manage this a little better. So again, we produce this wonderful uh, food and then literally they dump it on a slab of concrete. And sometimes it'll get rained on, sometimes it will uh, get exposed to pests, whether they be rodents or, or insects. And again, the challenges around food security, and I, I recently saw some information about food loss of harvested food relative to then consumed food. Australia is one of the worst. We waste about 100 kilos per person per year. China is actually very high as well. It's around 60. And some of the leading countries uh, are those in Africa where they're far more, uh, I suppose, sensitive to any food loss and they're sort of around 10. But there are so many more innovative things that we can do just to manage our wheat, um, uh, our wheat harvest. And this is one of my favorite shots. This is one of our cropping supervisors. Um, halfway through harvest, he goes and buys half a dozen watermelons and pulls them all out and shares them with the boys. So um, I've never actually had a watermelon at wheat harvest before, but uh, it was definitely a, a, a great thing. Okay, so now let's look into the new farms and uh, desert recovery. So I moved now, those first uh, shots of the wheat are in uh, Shandong, which is in the east of China, about a 500 mil rainfall zone, summer dominant and double crop. So wheat in the winter, corn in the summer. This video is over in a place called Zhangye, which is in Gangsu province, which is next to Xinjiang. You can see here on the edge of town, this is an environment that has literally been built in the last 20 years. In the foreground is a high-speed train. These are the trains that run at 300 kilometers an hour and literally go right up the center of the country. And Gangsu actually borders Mongolia. It goes uh, against uh, into the foreign country. And you can hop on that train and if the borders were open, you could actually go into Mongolia. This area is incredible. It reminds me a little bit of California. And so the image is very hard to look at, but that white on the top, and this, this was taken in May, that is all snow on Alps up on the range. And down in front, you've got a, an elevated alpine desert. And the rainfall here is about 200 mils per year, but they're able to grow things here solely because of the water that's available. But this area has been a desert for hundreds and hundreds of years. It has not been caused by bad farming practices or other things, but 
in this part of the country, they are now transforming this through rehabilitation of, of, of this land. On the next slide, we can see some of the projects. This is how they start to rehabilitate these dunes and desert areas. It is horrendously labor intensive. And they start by dividing it up, as you can see, putting up little fences and then running trickle pipe, trickle irrigation to start to grow things. After about two years, they start growing trees. And we'll see that on the next slide. And there are actually programs whereby people can invest in their tree. So we've all heard about Jack Ma and um, Alibaba. Alibaba has an option to donate some of your credits, like your frequent flyer points or your bank points, to buy trees and rehabilitate desert land. So there is a very, very large scale and very, very socially enabled movement in China to rehabilitate this type of land that, as I said, was, has been desert for hundreds of years. It hasn't been destroyed. If we then go to the next slide, what are they then doing with this land? This is the middle of nowhere getting invited to a groundbreaking ceremony for a new dairy farm. You can't tell, but that day is 40 degrees. And this is literally in the middle of a desert. So this is what it looks like. This is where they're putting the dairy farm. Lovely ladies in beautiful gold dresses. And in the next slide, you will see the dialer crowd who were all brought in on buses to the middle of nowhere for the ceremony that went for about an hour and a half. So you can see infrastructure firsthand getting built and utilising land that is honestly very, very unproductive. But they are utilising the water that they have. They are rehabilitating this and they will, they'll be growing corn on this land in about two years. So that's the timeline that they put upon this on, on, a, on top of the rehabilitation. But it is done with very cheap labour and very labour intensive. We've got two extremes here. This is a silage bunker with about 20,000 tonnes of corn in it, perfectly harvested with class harvesters, um, beautifully kernel crushed. See that there's an army of people, you know, ensuring that the, the silage is, uh, and there's, you can't see it from the image, but there's oxygen barrier plastic. This silage is as good as you'll make anywhere. And then if we look at the next slide, these guys are on a bridge, just driving over the river with uh, their truckload of silage. China still remains on one hand, you know, absolute development and high technology. And on the other hand, basic subsistence farming from probably the 1950s in China. So we've still got the two extremes. But probably the funnest part of my job, uh, the things that I get to do and see here in China, this was a, a meal with a family, which was just fantastic and invited into their home and very enjoyable. And on the final slide, if when China opens its borders, probably the middle of next year, you can all come to Zhangye and have a look. They have this beautiful area called the Rainbow Mountains, and it is just absolutely amazing. This is over probably a uh, 5,000 hectare area of these, of these mountains. So it's uh, just spectacular. So guys, look, thank you again for inviting me along. And I just wanted to show you the two extremes here of China from the technology and the lack of technology and the expansion and uh, the opportunity that still exists here in China. So thank you. Thank you very much, Paul, for that little quick snapshot of what you've actually been seeing and looking at in China. What we'll do is I'm gonna move on to the 2019 scholars for their panel session. There'll be questions back to you, Paul, and you and no doubt, and there's already a couple in the barrel there. Um, but I'd like um, just to ask the 2019 scholars, the last of the travellers, as they call themselves at the moment, but don't worry, 2020 and 21 and 22, you'll all get your chance, hopefully. Um, I'd just like them to uh, introduce them one by one, talk a bit about uh, their study topic, their outcomes as part of the, the theme of the SDG9 um, and the industry innovation and infrastructure. So if I can call on you, Andrew Sargent, to lead the way, please. Uh, yeah, Andrew Sargent from Crystal Brook in South Australia. Uh, we run a broadacre cropping property uh, in the mid-north. Um, and, yeah, I own or manage that in partnership with my parents. And, uh, yeah, so I looked at open source technology for agriculture and how we could bring some of that stuff from other tech industries into ag, uh, which has predominantly been a fairly proprietary sort of closed source uh, industry. Um, I found that, yeah, 
there is opportunities um, to bring a bit of that in, into ag, um, and it's probably going to be driven driven by growers. Uh, manufacturers obviously have a have an, a, an incentive to keep their IP to themselves, um, which up until now has probably stifled innovation um, and made progress fairly slow as far as uh, ag tech goes. Um, so I think, yeah, as far as the SDG goes, um, for us to build resilient infrastructure, an open source approach is going to help. It's going to make stuff more future-proofed um, and able to, to guess, get more people involved. Um, yeah, since, since I finished my scholarship, I've tried to implement some open source auto steer and some farm management software um, just to try and, I guess, make it a bit easier going forwards. Um, so that our data is a bit more accessible for us for us later on. Excellent. Thank you, Andrew. Um, we'll move on to Tom Moore from New South Wales. Hi, everyone, and uh, thank you, David. Yeah, my name's Tom Moore. I'm a 2019 scholar. I'm sponsored by the Royal Agricultural Society Foundation. I'm from Tenterfield, northern New South Wales. With my wife and I, we produce and sell our own free-range eggs. We started the business in 2016 from nothing, and we've now got 8,000 hens and five staff, and we supply around 50 um, different businesses in the district. And just at the moment, we are planning the next steps of growth for our business. And with the nature of the business and the infrastructure that we have, you can't just organically grow like any normal business would. So, um, well, I suppose farming's much like that, but we'll probably be having to double our business if we want to make any investment at all. Um, my study topic was to look into the future housing systems of free range egg production, which connects quite nicely to SDG 9. Um, innovation and infrastructure has been a focus of our business from the beginning and will continue to be in the future. We've always looked to have the latest equipment, trying to use it to its potential um, to deliver better outcomes for the hens. My Nuffield travels took me through uh, Asia and Europe, where my eyes was open, as Paul was saying, to see how a billion people need feeding in China in pretty much whatever way possible to the highest welfare standards in Europe, producing a high welfare very high cost option for the customers that can afford it. Excellent, thank you very much, Tom. I will now, hopefully if they're online, I can't see them, we're gonna find out better either. Natasha, you're online to introduce yourself. Uh, yes, so, uh, I'm a 2019 scholar. I am a certified organic vegetable grower. We have two farms in Baxter and New South Wales, uh, sorry, Mornington Peninsula and New South Wales. Uh, we've grown from three acres in 2009 with just ourselves farming to 160 acres in uh, current times with 40 employees. My uh, topic for my study was um, looking for alternatives to plastic packaging on fresh produce. So as a supplier to major supermarkets in Australia and being organic, every uh, product is required to be uh, wrapped in plastic um, and most of our organic customers do not like plastic. So. I travelled 19 countries in 19 weeks in 2019 and the start of 2020, trying to find this. Um, and yeah, my my topic changed. And um, the outcome I had, thought I was going to find when I started off on my ventures with COVID and everything like that completely changed my uh, perception and my um, uh, silver bullet, I guess, um, with the outcomes. Excellent. Uh, Beck, are you online? Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm remote today and away from my office, so yeah, just getting used to some different technology. But thank you. Um, my topic for the Nuffield was optimising beef genetic selection in Northern Australia in particular, because there's a lot less uptake in the North compared to the South. Um, I travelled to 15 countries, um, to the South Americas and um, Kenya, and through Europe um, and also to Canada and the US. So quite a good snapshot of what's happening in those fields and especially across different um, protein production systems so not just beef. Um, currently I'm um, operating from Augustella and which is out in Western Queensland near Charleville. Um, Dan and I will make 1,500 females this year. And since Nuffield and all of my learnings, um, we will capture data this year, in particular on our core focus breeding herd 
of 200 head with phenotype and genotypes. So um, yeah, looking at capturing um, DNA and getting genomics on those cattle and looking at diagnostic traits such as horn and pole, but also um, yeah, getting EBVs on those cattle as well. Excellent, right, I thank you very much. Well, um, if we can revert back to you, Paul, just as a question there to talk a little bit about, a bit more about what you're doing. I have one straight off the bat. What exactly were the drones spraying in the wheat crop? That is a very good question as to what they were spraying. So I'm gonna mix your question with the question on the chat. So the government actually mandates certain things to be sprayed for. So they worry about large builds up of insects. And so this was for thrips and for any other insects we could kill. Now, these guys come from a, uh, a different perspective than we do in Australia. We've introduced this new concept called economic thresholds to spray crops um, and also to kill weeds in crops. So it's usual that these farmers in Shandong would only have half an acre. And so they will overspray and they will use every herbicide, every pesticide they possibly can because their objective is to maximise the amount of food that they get from a small area. So the cost of the spraying is sometimes paid for by government and usually the herbicide is provided. And again, to the question that was sort of asked uh, on the chat, so the government from time to time tells you that you have to spray your corn crop, say for Heliothus, or um, your wheat crop for different pests. Um, last year, they got all excited about rust um, and we chose a wheat variety that was quite rust resistant. And I told them we were not spraying for rust and they got very, very, very upset um, because there had been large areas of rust in villages, in, in villages cropping. So um, you do sometimes have your hand forced, but if it's done and I don't like this approach, but if it's done at no cost to your business, then sometimes you just, uh, I wouldn't like to use the term roll over, but sometimes you choose which fights you're going to have. Just as a secondary question there to that, Paul, there's a, can you speak a little bit about the independence and flexibility that there is in Chinese farming um, and the decision-making in relative to the Chinese government? Can you just expand on that a little, please? Yeah, 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 sure. So, so I think part of it is, Sometimes there's no flexibility. They tell you that you're going to spray for rust and you have to spray for rust. But I think Tom Moore just said it uh, very beautifully that um, generally the Chinese approach to food production is do whatever, whatever way is possible to make food, you can make food. So within reason, um, there's a large amount of independence. There's no real direct central government control on um, uh, what farmers do or don't do other than two things. One is the law. So there are very strict food safety rules, uh, particularly around the production of milk, um, following the large and terrible melamine issues uh, back in the, in the late noughties. So um, food quality and safety are paramount, but actually the monitoring of the on the ground, particularly in terms of row crops, um, cereals, is not very well monitored. Um, it's usually done at harvest. Um, and it's done on residue testing. And what usually happens is when they find wheat or corn with higher residues than they like for human consumption, that food that uh, then gets moved into animals. The second thing that the Chinese government do is they do heavily uh, manipulate the market with, um, you can call them subsidies, but I'd call them more financial incentives. So three years ago, they had a very active program, uh, which was called grain to green, and that was to uh, encourage farmers to make corn silage rather than to make corn for kernel. So they subsidised every tonne of silage that you made uh, by 50 RMB, which is 10 Aussie dollars, um, that basically brought the, the two things in line. So that was to incentivise farmers to make more fodder and make less corn, because at that stage, the corn supply in China was... Um, well above excess and their central reserves were, were full. So they'll do that type of thing. Um, two years ago, they did the same thing on soya beans. Everybody went and planted lots of soya beans. Last year, there were no, no financial incentives. And something that I do like to share with everybody is that um, there are no taxes on agriculture in China. Wow, there we go. We might move to China. <laughs> 
Um, Natasha, we might just flick to you. Um, you mentioned a, a requirement of uh, supermarkets wanting to supply plastics, yet we've got to pay for our plastic bags these days from the supermarkets. But how are you going with in relation to packaging and supermarkets and who's working with you, who's not? Yeah, good question, Dave. Um, so we supply um, to the largest supermarkets in Australia. One of those supermarkets is not looking at alternative, like uh, compostable packaging at this stage, um, purely due to the fact that it will mess up the recycling stations if we happen to put a compostable plastic in with your general plastics. Uh, so that's their stance on that one. Another supermarket I do believe is trialling a compostable um, starch plastic, uh, which is slightly cloudier, less transparent than your uh, regular plastic. Um, and it seems to be well received from customers. I found that with COVID-19, um, where before customers didn't want plastic on their produce, now they're actually quite comfortable to have plastic on their produce, uh, purely from a point of view where customers can't touch it or cough on it or you know, spread the germs across that. So um, I'm looking to see the space where this apple producer is currently using the compostable plastic just to see how that's received um, by the supermarket and whether they'll allow us to then try that as well. But at the moment, we're on the bank back, back bench waiting for our turn to at least try that. Okay, thank you very much. Um, now there's another question to you, Paul, in terms of uh, your own health and welfare. This is from uh, Bernadette in New South Wales. Uh, your own health and welfare. Do you eat the Chinese produced food or imported food? And are you concerned about your own health as a result of some of the choices made by the local farmers? Yeah, look, that's a great question. and. Uh... To be fair, I drink Aussie milk. Um, and to be fair, there's a lot of very good quality milk made in China. And sometimes I drink local fresh milk, but to be honest, I, I like um, Australian UHT milk. I eat a fair bit of beef that's imported from Australia or from uh, Argentina. Um, and I used to drink Aussie wine, but um, you know the, the tariffs have got a little silly, so it's got quite expensive. When it comes to vegetables, it's very difficult. Um, and uh, it's about making sure you clean them properly. Um, and there are various both chemicals, which does sound a little bit silly, but also things like UV lights um, to kill the bugs. Um, when I first got to China, I was less concerned about the herbicides and the pesticides. I was more concerned to know that uh, human manure is one of the best things for growing green leafy vegetables. And uh, one of my colleagues ended up with a good case of Giardia um, as a consequence of eating out in rural, rural China. So I, I am mindful of it. I really try not to eat fish um, in China. Um, uh, that's probably from a heavy metals perspective. Um, so yeah, I, I'm mindful of it, but to be honest, uh, the conference I'm at, I, uh, you know, I, I eat what's presented to me. Okay. Um, question to you, Beck. What do you think are the main barriers to adoption of your findings for Northern Australian beef producers? There's quite a few factors at play um, for the barriers for adoption um, for Northern producers, but firstly, it would have to be scale. Um, Southern Australia has had a bigger adoption on the measurement or the phenotyping of their cattle because they've got smaller herds and smaller paddocks. So therefore it's yeah, easier to capture that information, um, especially when we've got to do it in such a um, labor intensive manner. Um, the exciting thing though that I saw in my research was basically all of the automated phenotyping that um, yeah, researchers are working on um, but a lot of that's happening in Australia already. So um, with that, we'd be able to measure our cattle a lot more um, effectively um, and with less labour and more accurately. However, just the return on investment probably is um, one of those limiting factors, Dave. It's, um, yeah, they're quite costly at the moment. And yeah, we're still working on yeah, making it easy to analyse all of that data that's captured. But um, yeah, there are research projects out there that I've collaborated with since returning home, such as the Reprenomics Project and um, working with the University of Queensland on some genotyping. Um, so at this point, yeah, just working with the researchers um, yeah, is what I've been doing um, until it does become more mainstream. Okay, tremendous. Uh, question to you, Andrew. Um, if open source technology is going to be driven by farmers, then how is scaling going to occur? Yeah, thanks for that, Emma. Um, yeah, I think, I guess, 
to be honest, they're driven by farmers, I guess, as consumers, we've got to push the manufacturers to provide solutions that are open source, um, that are more compatible. I mean, we've been battling with manufacturers for over 20 years, trying to get compatibility between brands and even between same products of the same brand. So until, until there's, I guess, there's a viable option for farmers to say, well, look, I'm going to go that way rather than, than use your product, there's no real incentive for, for manufacturers. But I guess the, the beauty of, of tech is that it's, it is fairly easy to scale. Um, and once you've got a solution that works in an industry, you can scale that across an industry. You just you know copy paste and and away you go. So it's probably one of the the easier things to scale. Of course, there'll be there'll be variations between different industries, um, but yeah, it's it's something that, that can scale fairly well, I think. Yeah. Okay. Just a secondary question: How do we how are we going to convince the big companies like Case and John Deere to uh, open source their uh, information, their technology, for us to do what we want? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> um, <laughs> you did the study. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I guess we we need we need an alternative, and we need to get them to come to the table, um, and I guess make it seem less of a, I guess for them at the moment, they can hold market share by having having their systems closed in. It, it's changing now, like since I started my study, um, what, two, two years ago, two or three years ago, it's changed a lot in the last 12 months even. Um, there's a lot more interoperability, interoperability between brands now that have moved to the cloud. Um, there's a lot of brands that are working on connections between different platforms um, to allow you to share your data between, between each platform. Um, but I think if we can, get some better standards between brands and with data formats um, to get rid of a common standard is going to save a lot of that conversion from one type to another and just make the whole thing a lot more efficient, uh, a lot more flexible. So I can actually start getting some of the benefits from, from big data that everyone keeps spruiking. So we'll, we'll move on probably the, to you, Tom. Um, what was the key finding or the key eureka moment to use Emma's question across the board what was the eureka moment of your travels to help you with your business and your industry? Really, for me, it was to watch your back because if if caged production is gotten rid of, whether that's through a ban or through voluntary um, changeover to a different type of equipment, then all of a sudden we're likely to be the commodity egg. So if you're if you're not competitive in the market now, God help you in the future. Um, that was a big one because the the free range market in Europe is enormous, but no one's making any money, and the welfare is very good too, and the equipment's up to date, and it has to be. But um, it is very very cutthroat. But it was it was to be honest a little um, a little intimidating. Okay, well, there's a secondary question there too. Um, how do the free range sheds compare to caged birds in terms of carbon footprint and production efficiencies? Well, um, not good. Um, the the cage systems trump free range in most measures. Um, they've even measured stress in the albumen of the egg, so without interfering with the bird at all. And cage um, topped all production methods, but um, they don't like to talk about that. And then from a carbon perspective, um, soil degradation degradation in the range area for free range is a major problem. Um, and it's something that we do have to deal with almost continuously, taking away manure, trying to stop topsoil erosion and then run off into streams and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, there's some real issues and you've got to stay on top of it. Thanks for that one. Um, there was another one back here for you Paul, which is uh, from Robin Chay from South Australia. China's been buying a huge amount of corn over the last 12 months. What's your take on this? Is it because of declining Chinese corn stock due to drought and flooding or because of increased animal feed use? Yeah, so there's, there's three things that are happening. The first one is that uh, African swine fever is now under control in China and they're probably sitting at 80 to 90% of the pre-African swine fever sow numbers. So that has created an inflection in the bottom and now we're heading back up towards uh, peak uh, pig numbers. So um, that has then put a, an additional strain or on, the, on the supply. The second thing, um, and this is a more recent phenomenon, 
Um, so again, the corn is getting harvested now all across northern China. There has been an exceptional amount of rain. Um, it's the wettest uh, summer in Beijing for over 50 years. Um, usual Beijing annual rainfall is about 400 to 450 mils. It falls in May, June, July, August, a little bit into September. This year, there's been 850 mils. So Shandong, where I used to be, is 500 kilometres south. Um, usually, we would have harvested our corn crop by about the 5th of October. It is not harvested yet. So um, there are massive amounts of corn in China, probably in the north, maybe 20% that won't be harvested um, at all. So that will put a big uh, deficit in, in the local production. The third thing is um, post-COVID, all feeds have gone up. And uh, just again, to put some direct numbers on it, a tonne of corn silage um, in 2019 was about 430 RMB. You can divide that by five for Aussie dollars. Uh, this year, in, it's about 550 to 600. So that's just on the ground demand. Um, so yeah, a lot of, lot of factors. The thing to really watch now, uh, I was talking to a friend in Western Australia, I think Australian lupins are about to have a good run. Um, soya beans are disproportionately expensive. If a trader can get their act together and get some lupins definitely into China or across the world, um, there's money to be made. Natasha, do you have a, a eureka moment for your travels? A lightning moment that hit me was when I was in Denmark and I came across a startup company which was uh, funded or received a grant from National Geographic and they were making like a, an EcoFlex um, plastic um, made from food scraps. So the companies like PepsiCo and Boost all the food scraps and everything like that, they were able to make up a cellulose layer, uh, which they've turned into an EcoFlex plastic, which is sort of like a clean film or stretch wrap. And I just thought that was amazing. Rather than growing crops and crops of corn or potatoes or um, maize to make um, plastic out of, like, which is a lot of... There's one thing that came up with my um, studies was that people say, well, you've, you've got to grow food to make a, a food product, like a, a plastic product. So I think the lightning moment for me was finding this... Um, product that was actually made from food scraps and stuff that would have gone otherwise into a, you know, a tip or a, a waste dump. So I just thought that was pretty good technology. Yeah. Can you expand on the fact that you're in New York when the lockdown began with COVID? <laughs> um, so I did have a couple of um, appointments lined up, some farmers and a plastic company over in New York that were making uh, innovations over there. And I was in New York City. I'd gotten there on the Monday and on the Tuesday, New York went into lockdown. So I got to see New York um, Times Square when it's really, really busy. And then I got to see it the next day uh, with six people in the city, which was uh, quite uh, surreal, quite scary, quite spooky. Um, it felt like there were going to be riots and things like that. So I was um, very lucky to get on a flight two days later to come home and yeah, have my nice, quiet, mandatory isolation on the farm. Yeah, okay. Tom, what was the major innovation you saw? Multi-level housing, really. So basically um, a technology that was invented to help the cage boys move away from cages um, and go into a multi-tiered system, which actually benefits the birds in lots of ways, whether it's um, flying, perching, um, the hierarchy um, reiteration. So dominant birds live up in the top and the less dominant birds can live down the bottom. Um, yeah, very interesting stuff and, and lots of um, IP around that with farm managers that know how to use it um, and then a lot of people that don't know how to use it and they try and use it like a traditional system and it doesn't work at all. Um, I think the Americans are going through that at the moment with their expansion of cage-free production. Uh, yeah, so that was it for me. Yeah, just a final question to all of you. Do you think innovation sometimes slows production or speeds it up? I'll go first if no one's jumped in. Um, for the egg production, you're actually, with, the, with new investment in the latest equipment, you're seeing lower costs of production, higher productivity, and a better welfare outcome for the hen. So if you can afford to do it, it's a no-brainer. Anyone else? Andrew, you got a comment? Yeah, I'll jump in there. Um, yeah, I think with any innovation, there's always hurdles, there's always challenges. Um, so I guess in the, in the short term, you're going to see maybe not so much a, re a reduction in production, but 
there'll be there'll be challenges, but if we don't address those challenges, then we're never going to go forward. So yeah, I think in the long term we need we need innovation. Okay, well, good. Well, I'd just like to thank you guys. Um, congratulations on all your studies, all your outcomes. Uh, thanks for being part of the conference today. Thanks for the the good discussion. Kicker, I'd like to thank uh, Ewan and Paul for doing their presentations. Um, you will, you can contact them directly. You can either do it through Nuffield or just direct to them uh, if you'd like to get in touch, if you want have any more questions, any more things you'd like to talk about. We're now going to watch a video that, uh, that's been pre-recorded from Roger Mercer, who's a 1986 UK scholar, chairman of Mercer Farming, past chair of Nuffield International, uh, also a very good friend of mine. And Roger will outline uh, 70 years of what's happened with Nuffield and Nuffield Australia. So uh, away we go. Hello to everyone at the conference and uh, particularly to all recent scholars. Uh, many congratulations on you achieving your awards. Um, you can certainly look forward to your involvement in Nuffield, enriching your life in, in a major way. Um, I was introduced to Nuffield at the age of 30 after having met uh, Dan Donovan from Australia and Dave Hurst from New Zealand who in 1984 who were doing their Nuffield tour in the UK. Um, as a result it encouraged me to attend various UK events uh, which ultimately led me uh, to apply uh, and, and achieve a scholarship in 1986 and I went and studied pigs, potatoes and farm management in North America. Um, without doubt it broadened my horizons hugely. Uh, and led me directly uh, to expanding both in the UK and uh, farming in Eastern Europe, uh, growing potatoes in Hungary for a few years and investing in Poland and then buying land in New South Wales, uh, which we had for 12 years um, and we sold it a couple of years ago. Uh, it, I've always found Nuffield to be a huge sort of a source of advice uh, and uh, information over the years. I was later fortunate to be asked to chair Nuffield International and had the pleasure of meeting many young scholars at the start of their journey in different locations around the world. I mention my own experience with Nuffield only to highlight that it really is a life-changing experience. It requires you to put effort in and if you do so you're going to be richly rewarded. The experiences gained and the contacts made all add up to a fabulous experience and this never ends. The reach of Nuffield is enormous in that you not only have all the alumni in all sorts of prominent positions, but the reputation of Nuffield opens many doors and creates opportunity. Nuffield has been a major source of progression in our industry since its inception by William Morris, Lord Nuffield in 1947 and it continues to evolve and adapt over the years, both within individual countries as well as internationally. Hi everybody. Hi team. Hey fellow scholars. What's up y'all? Yeah, hi everyone. Hi. Kia ora. Hello everyone. Uh, my name is Victor, I'm from Brazil. Hi, I'm Alison Larad. Hi, my name's Kate and I'm a 2018 Nuffield Scholar from New Zealand. I'm Klaus Leitenberger, one of the Irish Nuffield Scholars. And just like the rest of you, a proud Nuffield Scholar. The creation of Nuffield International by member countries in 2011 is a prime example of this evolution. A huge amount of effort went into setting it up and many thanks must go to all those involved particularly Jim Gelch and Peter Nixon. It is now ably chaired by Andrew Fowler with Jodie Redcliffe as CEO and Mike Vacher as CFO. It has helped widen the Nuffield network and the involvement of new countries enriches the experience for all scholars and widens Nuffield's reach even further. The addition of Brazil, USA, South Africa, Chile, Japan and Germany over recent years has widened Nuffield's footprint enormously. The work done by Nuffield International supports the development of individuals in agriculture around the world, giving Nuffield scholars the confidence, knowledge and network to step up as leaders at home and on the global stage. Nuffield International is also represented at the United Nations Committee for Food Security, being the only farmer organisation represented there. Nuffield also continues to develop 
in individual countries in different ways. Also the development of the CSC and the Global Focus Programme and all the other changes within individual countries help progress the organisation to where it is today. This enormous reach of Nuffield, both nationally and internationally, and its ability to change and adapt, help it move towards its goals and ultimately, hopefully, create a better world. We are all very fortunate to be part of this family and it is incumbent on us all to make the most of it. I hope you have a great conference and best wishes to you all for the future. Terrific. Thank you, Roger, for that. That concludes this afternoon's session. Uh, thank you, everyone, for attending. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, there's a survey to be filled in so we can get some feedback. But anyway, the same time tomorrow, one o'clock tomorrow, uh, there'll be another exciting line of speakers, including Idaho rancher Dick Whitman and 2009 Kenyan-based scholar now, Australian scholar Stuart Barden, as well as from the CSIRO Research Director of Farming Systems, Jen Taylor. And also we'll be hearing from another group of the 2019 scholars. So thank you all for all your participation. Thank you for your questions. And I hope you've enjoyed your afternoon. Thank you very much. The Nuffield Australia Annual Conference was exclusively sponsored by Rabobank and CSIRO. Thank you to all our conference speakers and panellists. Links to their details are provided in the episode show notes. To listen to other conference sessions, make sure to subscribe. And to see videos of these podcasts, visit the Nuffield Australia YouTube channel. For more information about upcoming events, check out our Facebook page or visit nuffield.com.au. Thanks for listening.